Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Good morning. Um, my name is Tolu. I've been here at Mercy for six years when Steve was here, so it's very uh, humbling, I guess, <laughs> to be up here. Um, but yes, today we will study God's Word together. If you don't have a Bible, please look to the ushers that are coming down the line and uh, get one from them. If you don't have a Bible, please keep that. If you know someone that needs a Bible, please take that home to them. So we'll be in Ephesians, I'll pray and then we'll jump in. All right. Let's uh, pray. Father, thank you for your sovereignty and your sufficiency, for your mercy unto us, for how you keep running after us, God. Thank you for the extent you go to to draw us back to yourself. Uh, to make your love known unto us. So, Father, today we are praying that you will meet us where we are and you will just reveal yourself unto us, open our hearts to receiving you, to seeing you, God, to seeing how who you are meets us where we are. And may we be transformed as we continue to look to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So we will be in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, just verses 1 and 2, which means the sermon will probably be 15 minutes, and then we'll go home. <laughs> but no, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Um, before we jump into the text itself, let me sort of give a little context, and then we'll dive into the text itself. So just to talk about what Ephesians is and how that came about. So in verse 1, actually, when you look at verse 1, where it says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. That word Ephesus actually wasn't there in the original manuscript. Um, it, it was just left blank. And it's a little weird since Paul actually spent quite a bit of time at Ephesus, right, that he didn't address anyone specifically in the book. Uh, so basically what we conclude on, or what theologians have concluded on, was that the letter itself was sent to churches in South Western Asia Minor, and then was later linked to the church of Ephesians, uh, the church at Ephesus uh, at a later time. So what we know is that Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison, and he probably wrote it at the same time he wrote Colossians as well as Philemon, right? And so, oh yeah, we have slides, but yeah, I'll be talking through that. Um, so he wrote almost those letters probably at the same time, and especially with Colossians. There's a lot of correlation of the themes that you see in there. So it's very likely that right after writing the letter to the Colossians, which he wrote as a response to some of the heresies that were going on in that church, right? So at that time, um, these pagan ideas of principalities and powers were being introduced uh, into the church. And uh, it was basically the conclusion of all those heresies was that Christ wasn't really supreme. Right, so he wrote uh, Colossians in response to that. Now, probably or maybe likely, he, after writing that, he's probably stepping back and reflecting a little bit. Because again, he's in prison. Uh, he knows the end is coming, right? Not that he knows he's about to die, but he knows he won't live for much longer. And so this letter probably comes from a place of deep reflection. So Ephesians wasn't written to address any question or a follow-up on a particular letter, right? It was written almost to express his, uh, his perspective, almost like his theology. And so you see two large themes uh, in the book of Ephesians, right? 
So on one hand, you see the theme of God's work in us and for us and what God is doing, almost like a worldview, a perspective that we should have as Christians. And then right after that, you see Paul talking about our position in that worldview, right? And so basically he grounds our position in the perspective of what God is doing and he grounds our identity in that. And then from that, he starts talking about certain implications or how we should live from somewhere within chapter 4 into chapter 6. So the first three chapters are basically more Paul just talking about worldview, perspective, his theology, so to say, his understanding. Now at that time, you would realize that the church was a, it wasn't like organized religion the way we have it today, right? It was probably more like smaller movements, almost like a new cultic thing, right? It was called the way, uh, until, uh, people in Antioch started calling them Christ-like Christians, right? And so, this was important for them. Right. Again, they didn't have this. They didn't have the Bible as we have it today. So getting these letters and looking at them and reviewing them was very important. So what Paul was doing, giving this theology, was something that was quite important for them to be able to hold on to. So I say all of this to say to help locate us right where the original recipients were, so that our hearts are open and we see how important what Paul is saying. So anyway, that's the context, and then we jump into uh, the text. Uh, But before we jump into the text, um, if we are to ever take our growth in God seriously, right, we we have to take repentance seriously. Uh, By repentance, I just don't mean confession and sobbing or crying, which is fine, right? There's nothing wrong with that. What I mean, though, is that there has to be a turning away from the things we are putting our hope in, to God, right? That's what repentance is. There has to be that turning, right? You could almost go as far as saying part of how we see our maturity in God is how much uh, repentance features in our lives, right? How, how much it's a consistent feature in our life, right? Because we see who we are. So uh, Martin Luther, and I think we have a, a, a text on this. Yeah. So hopefully you guys can see it. But let me move if that helps. I guess no matter where I move. <laughs> and let me go back here. <laughs> Hopefully you can see it. I'm going to read, but you can see it. So uh, Martin Luther coined this phrase. I'm not going to pronounce it. It's Latin. So anyway, you know what the phrase is. And he basically says this about it. So, Scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical, but even spiritual goods for his purposes, and in all things, seeks only himself. Right, you, you look at Jeremiah 17, 9, and Romans 7, 15, 18 to 19 as scriptures that back this up, right? And, and basically what I derive from this is we are so blinded in our depravity, right? That it's all about us. And what's more, we don't even know we are that blinded, right? There is that blindfold, so to say. And then Luther goes on to say that our nature is so deeply carved in on itself that it not only blends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, but it also fails to realize that it is so wickedly, that it so wickedly and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. Right. So let me give an example with, on this, right? and then we dive into the text. Uh, so two levels to this example. So 
some of you are aware of the prosperity gospel, which basically says it is your right, your divine right, right, to always be healthy and always be wealthy, and it's part of the salvation package. And the way you get that is you uh, confess positively and you have faith and you, you, know, you basically get what you want, right? It, it is a wrong theology, for sure. But what I'm hoping you see in that theology is the use of God for our own end. Right, it's you see the man in that sense is carved in on itself, right? So that's one example. Now let me use myself as an example. Still going off of that. The people that know me know that I joke about that a lot and I laugh about it. I think it's funny that people believe that, right? But it's also not funny because it hurts people, right? When you put your trust in that, right? But this is where I am carved in on myself. So I look at prosperity teachers or those who believe it. And in a sense, and sometimes in my heart, it's almost like I'm saying, thank God I am not like that. Right? Like the Pharisee in Luke 18, that when praying to God, he's saying, oh, thank God I'm not like that tax collector there. Right? And so you see that even in me understanding that, oh, the prosperity gospel is false, there is a way I can be curved in on myself. In my heart, I don't have to say it outwardly. Right? And so this is the struggle uh, we, we sometimes Face, right? So don't get me wrong. Prosperity gospel is wrong. I am all for denouncing what is wrong. What I am trying to highlight there is how even standing in the light, I can be curved in on myself, right? So my prayer and hope today is as we journey together into the text that we see, we see the need for us to turn from ourselves to God, that we see how theocentric Paul is, in the whole of Ephesians, but also in these first two verses, and we begin to find ourselves in reference to God. Hence the title of the sermon being a recentering on God, right? Us being recentered on God. So I'm praying that we have that orientation shift. So let me quickly read and then we'll dive into it. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you look inside the, the handouts you have, I have pretty much just one point to draw out from this first two verses, right? And it's this point that God is the primary actor. That is the main point I want to drive out from these two verses. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the text I'm going to highlight how I see God as being the primary actor. We'll talk about certain implications, and then we'll probably have some kind of homework or exercise at the end. Right, so that's sort of like the structure. So, like I said, Paul kicks off Ephesians by laying out a worldview right, for, for us and locating ourselves within that worldview and the implications of what that is. So basically, Paul is after our grounding in Christ so that we eventually become the good tree that bears good fruit. Basically, we eventually become Christ-like. We eventually take on the nature of God. So let me start out with the first line. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So the word apostle there basically means the saint one, right? And in the New Testament, it's used in two main ways. One is a more generic way of just messengers of Christ, 
right? So in a sense, just anyone that is a messenger of Christ that is sent. Uh, the other way it's used is in more of a technical, uh, narrower sense, which is the office of the apostle, right? Which Paul actually references in chapter 4. And so for the office of the apostle, that's basically the 12 and Paul, those who have received the direct commission from Christ. But Paul isn't just an apostle that can do anything he wants. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? There is an accountability there, right? And more importantly, well, you could say, it is by the will of God, right? So the, the will of God, while being a theme that shows up a lot in Ephesians, here it's not talking about, you know, me seeking the will of God in a particular situation. That's not what it means here. What it means here is that it's showing the driving force of God's action for humanity. Basically, God being the primary actor. So Paul is an apostle because it is what God wants. It is what God is driving, has been driving his life towards in a sense. Right? It's not because Paul deserves it. Right? And what I want you to see from just that first verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, I want you to see the deliberate action of God. Right? Not only in Paul's life, but in your life. Right, right from the beginning of time. Right, verse 4 actually points to that, which we won't get to today. Right from the beginning of time, I want you to see this deliberate foreplanning and the foreknowledge of God about you and what he wants to do in your life and where he wants to take you. So God isn't just sitting idly by where you are concerned. Right? Wherever you are at this moment, whatever you're wrestling with, the, the implication of knowing that God is the primary actor in your life is that he has a plan that he's working out, right? And primarily that plan is conformity to his image, right? But back in the day um, when I just came to faith, whenever I hear the will of God, I always think, oh, yeah, I'm going to be rich. You know, I'm going to be powerful. <laughs> but no, not that, right? That God is primarily working, draw, actively working to draw you to himself if you will have him. Right, so what are the implications of this where you are? Right, so perhaps it makes you a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty. Right, by knowing that God is the primary actor in your life. Right, uh, perhaps it helps you make God as this reference point in the decisions you're facing. Right, the decisions you're about to make. And hopefully, as we'll see later on, I am hoping it makes you rest your head more on the pillow of God's sovereignty, knowing that God is the primary actor. Yes, there are other actors, like you are an actor, you know, I'm an actor, uh, your boss is an actor, your spouse, your family, friends, enemies, all of that. But God is the primary actor. Not Satan, God is the primary actor in our lives. Right. So let me go to the next statement. It says that to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, by using the word saint, right, I know sometimes it connotes this idea of, you know, we're perfect, we're holy, right? But what it actually means is that they are set apart by God for God, like unto God, right? So it just means that God has chosen them to set them apart, right? But that word saints actually communicates the privilege and responsibility of the calling that is on all of our lives. We are set apart. By God, for God. So just as Paul is an apostle by the will of God, basically God 
chose him and set him apart for certain things. In the same way, he's communicating that the saints, the saints in Ephesus or all the other churches that actually got this right, that they also have been chosen by God and set apart right, for his purposes. So again, I'm hoping you're seeing the driving force of God's action again and how is that work in your life. Right, so the focus here is entirely on God's action. Uh, we're not saints in the sense that we are morally upright and perfect. No. But it is entirely based on the saving work of God. Right? Again, God is the primary actor in your life. Now, this aligns very well with the next descriptive phrase Paul uses. So he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Right? Uh, the faithful in Christ Jesus, they it talks about believing in Christ, obviously, but there is this notion of growth in God, this becoming more and more like him, right? So that's why he uses saints, meaning you've been chosen, set apart. But then there is a calling, there is a growing to becoming more and more like Christ, right? And the phrase in Christ is actually very significant, but we won't deal with it here. We'll deal with it at a later time, right? But, but again, what I want you to see is that The goal God has for you, your purpose, is not about what you are doing. It's more about who you are becoming. And that goal, that purpose, is conformity to the image of Christ. This is what God is at work in your life for. This is where he is going. Right? And so, this is a good time to do a little bit of, you know, comparing and contrasting, right? When we look at ourselves and our sins and the things we struggle with, right, there is this sense of being weighed down by them and being burdened and feeling unworthy and all of that. And that is true, right? But I want you to see how God sees you. That when you are set apart for him and his goal, his plan for you, what he's working out in your life is your conformity to his likeness or conformity to Christ. Now think of that. What God wants for you is that you are conformed to his likeness. That's how much he values you. Right? That is God's goal. That is where he's taking us all. Right? So I, I hope you see how we see ourselves usually and how God sees us and what he's working out in our lives. Right? Again, God is the primary actor in our lives. Uh, let me go to the next uh, verse, actually. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right after hinting at election, and the goal of election is always conformity to the image of God, right? But right after hinting at that, Paul offers two, two blessings in a sense, right? Grace and peace, right? First of all, he grounds that by letting us know he comes from God, right? Again, you see the primary action of God there, God as the primary actor. But, but the themes of grace and peace, they, they depict God's initial work of drawing us to himself, right? Because we are saved by grace alone, through faith, right? Draws us to himself, and then also his transforming work in our lives, right? The grace he keeps giving to mold us into his likeness, and the peace that comes from that, right? So his grace is there to empower us, to accept him, to renounce all ungodliness, to turn to him and live upright lives. You can see Titus 2, 11 to 13 for that. And his peace there reminds you of his faithfulness, right? And the wholeness he has in mind for you, what he has in mind for you as his goal, 
right? Conformity to his image. Right, so again, the, both the grace and the peace that Paul speaks about there, they're there to remind us again and again that God is the primary actor in our lives. And he walks to bring us to conformity to his image. So again, I, I hope just from these two verses you've seen how theocentric Paul has been in terms of he, he describes himself, the author, he describes the recipient, right? All in lieu of their relationship to Christ, right? You, you see that parallel there, right? And then he also takes what is a standard greeting uh, in, in the ancient world, and he changes it to, so there's the standard greeting will actually be greetings and peace <laughs> unto you. And so he changes that to grace and peace <laughs> unto you, right? So he basically, in a sense, almost Christianizes that, right? Again, just reminding them that their reference point is God, that they can trust in God, right? So again, God's purpose for you almost has nothing to do with your career. Right, almost has nothing to do with that, but but more to do with who you are becoming, right? And, and who you are becoming, what he wants for you, is that conformity to his image, right? So um, the, this quote by E.W. Tozer helps me a lot, where he says, "When I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, because God is the primary actor, right? It resolves a great deal of anxiety." It doesn't mean that things will end the way I want them to end. But knowing that God is the primary actor helps, at least helps in resolving that anxiety. So I hope so far that your shoulders are a little bit more relaxed in knowing that God is the primary actor in your life. Right? I hope um, you can rest more on the pillow of his sovereignty. Right? Knowing that whatever you're facing, God is not sort of blind to it. It, it didn't hit God by surprise, right? This is not what God is saying. Say, oh, snap. Did they actually sell Joseph to Egypt? I wasn't planning that. <laughs> right? right? So God, God is not surprised by that. God is primarily at work in your life uh, to bring you to himself. And if you will have him, he will do that. And he guarantees your transformation into Christ-likeness, right? By the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Right? That's that sign of guarantee. All right. So, having gone through the text and shown that God is the primary actor in our lives, I want to talk about certain implications, right? So, we'll dive into certain implications and then um, we'll, we'll head out from there. So, uh, the, the first implication that I hope you've seen is that you mean much to God, right? For, from eternity to all eternity, you mean much to God. Right? So, when you come to realize and I think we have this, yes. When we come to realize and know that God has had you in mind from eternity past, and he is at work to secure you now and into eternity future, it has the strangely calming, loving, and deeply joyful effect on your soul. Right? So I, I say it has this loving effect because you see the extent God goes to and the life the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Right? You, you mean much to God, hence why he left his glory in heaven, came down here on earth, right? and decided to take your place right? and be, your, be the atonement for your sins right? and take your punishment on. And I hope that that shows you over and over again that you mean much to God. 
you are not just another creation, right? You're another creature, I should say, right? You, you mean much to God. Right? And this is why his goal for you is to conform you to his image. Right? So, so let me say it again. When you come to truly realize and know that God has had you in mind from eternity past, and he is at work to secure you now and into eternity future, it truly has a strangely calming, loving, and deeply joyful effect on your soul. When I say joyful, what I mean is that you have this pervasive and overall sense of well-being. Why? Because you know he loves you. Right? From eternity to all eternity, he loves you. And if you will have him, he will transform you into his likeness. In addition, there is this deep resting in your soul. Because you have a grasp of the reality around you. Why? Because you know how everything ends. Right? You know how it ends. Right? Regardless of the pain and the issues. And that doesn't minimize the pain. But there is a light, so to say, at the end of that tunnel that you see. You know how everything ends. So as you struggle in life and there are challenges, right? I do want you to know that you are made for more. You are made for God. You are made for more, wherever you are. And that more is God. It's becoming like him, conformity to his image. Right? So the second implication I have here is actually a question. Right? And it's a question I'm sure you've come across. It's this question that is Christ Savior and Lord of your life. Right? So in lieu of all that we've talked about, God being the primary actor, God wanting to draw you to himself, God wanting to conform you to his image. Right? The, the question I have to ask is, are you, are you at a place to allow Christ to be both Savior and Lord of your life? Right? So by that I'm not asking if you're ready to try your hardest and be perfect. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not, that's not what it's about, right? I'm not saying you have to get your act together and never intentionally say, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about that, right? That, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, what I'm asking is, though, is this, and let me ask you a series of questions. Are you willing to, to truly start owning that walk of repentance? Where repentance is all of life, right? Where it's that journey of following him one step at a time. There will be some high points, but there will also be some low points. There will be some points where you are honestly disappointed with yourself and say, how could I have done that? Right? But I hope as you see that, you also see the extent of his love for you. Right? So uh, are you willing to be fully dependent on Christ where you follow him? One step at a time, one decision at a time, and even if you take the wrong path, being willing to repent, turn back to him. No matter how far gone you might think you are, right? turning back to him. Right? And yes, you will stumble, we will stumble. Right? We will fail over again. Sometimes it feels like a dance. You take two steps forward, you take three backwards. Right? But what God will guarantee is that you will continue moving forward towards his likeness. And so again, the question is, Uh, Are we willing to have uh, Christ as both Savior and Lord in our lives? Let let me touch on the Savior and Lord piece a little bit more. Um, There is sometimes this heresy that we have come to accept in Christian circles, right? And I'm going to, uh, basically this heresy is this idea that 
you say a prayer, right? You believe in Christ, and then that's it. Like you're done. It's this idea that you don't have to grow. It's this idea that you're not true. You don't really have to be an apprentice or a disciple of Christ. Like that's left for Steve. Let Steve be the disciple, right? Let the pastors be the disciple, right? Like I, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to accept God and I just want to stay where I'm at. You know, and God understands, you know, the, the, the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? It, it's, a, it's a heresy that we've bought into. Now, don't get me wrong. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It is not by our works. But what I am saying is if we are truly saved, over time, we begin to take on his nature. Right? So let me use an example. So let's say on one hand you have me. Carved in on myself, all my stress, all my issues, all my problems. Right? That's me. On the other hand, you have God. Right? His sovereignty, his power, his sufficiency, all that he is, and his goal for me, right? Conformity to his image. If we collide, what happens? Right? I get transformed. So if I truly accept him, if you truly accept him, over time, there will be that transformation because he is the one that is the primary actor, not me, right, transforming me. Yes, there is a part I play, yes. Right? And he would help me with that part. But he is still the primary actor right, in that transformation into Christ-likeness. Right. So, so again, the question becomes, is Christ Savior and Lord? So A.W. Tozer, and I think we have that quote, uh, talks about this heresy. And I just want to read this because I find it fascinating. Where he says, um, well, do we have it? No, we don't, right? No, no, we don't have it. Sorry, let me just read it. Um, Basically, he says, um, there is a notable heresy that has come into being throughout evangelical Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior. And then we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord, as long as we want to. Right? Dallas will say something about this heresy that I find funny. It says, this heresy has created the impression that it's quite reasonable to be a vampire Christian. Right? One in effect says to Jesus, I'd like a little bit of your blood, but please I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, why don't you just give me your blood? You know, being savior, right? The forgiveness of sins, right? So why don't you just give me that? And then won't you excuse me so that I can get on with my life and we'll see each other in heaven? Right? So it's this false idea that Christ can somehow be savior, but not Lord. Right? Which isn't true. Right? There is no true salvation without that conformity to his image. Right? I'm not saying the works save you. I'm saying if you truly meet with God because of who is he is, the sovereignty, his power, all that he is, there will be a transformation over time, obviously, right, into his likeness. Right, so let, let me go. So the question, obviously, that, that I have from this is, you know, how seriously do we take our apprenticeship to Christ? Right? Is it something we truly plan for and think about? And be more deliberate about it. Right? Now, it's not the same as like writing down goals and say, oh, goals for my career. Not, not like that. But do we make our time for God? Right? On a consistent basis. And then the last implication I have here is this idea of God's sovereignty. Where we get to rest our head on the pillow of his sovereignty. Right, so having touched on God's undying love for you, the first implication, you mean much to God. 
right? And, and touching on the importance of weighing all that what God has done, and then wrestling with that question of if Christ is truly Savior and Lord of our lives, right? I haven't touched on those two things. I do want to speak about the harsh realities of life, right? Life generally here isn't a bed of roses, right? There are challenges we face, right? And theology and doctrine is not just supposed to be some intellectual nice thing you say or know about, right? It's supposed to meet you where you are. Supposed to show you the beauty and the glory of God and draw you closer to Him. Supposed to help you where you are, right? For the purpose, for the goal of transformation into His image, right? So maybe you are facing the potential loss of a loved one. Maybe there is this burden on your heart and this desire you've longed for so long and still unfulfilled, right? Maybe there's some battling with depression and there's this seeming colorless hue to life. Right? Like, what is all of this about, anyways? Maybe there are health challenges within your family, but there's this dreaded diagnosis that is hanging over your head, right? Or hanging over the head of a loved one. And maybe it's the struggle with immorality and lust and jealousy and greed. Right? Maybe it's a combination of all those things. And sometimes maybe it's just the sense of what is my purpose? Your purpose is conformity to the image of Christ. <laughs> if you're looking for your purpose. But I say that in a jokey man. Um, it is true. But, but maybe it's that challenge and wrestling with purpose. And where am I going? What is the meaning of this? Right? Uh, maybe it's just having a, trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life? You know, I'm about to graduate. Do I go to college? Do I not go to college? This prayer pressure at school, whatever the case may be, right? Whatever things we wrestle with. So there are a couple of things I want to say to that, right? Again, drawing from all that we've said and the text. Uh, the first thing is you are not alone. You are never alone. Why? Because God is the primary actor in your life. He is with you, right? He's not sitting idly by, right? He who did not spare his own son but give him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Like Romans 8.32. By the promised name of Christ, Emmanuel, God is with us. God is with you. It's in the midst of these challenges and where you are, I do want you to remember that God is with you. The second thing I want to say is for you to borrow strength from the community of believers around you. Right? This is not a race you can run on your own because of what we said before, right? We are generally curved in on ourselves. So we need help. We need that community, right? This is why scripture will talk about how we should not neglect the fellowship of the brethren, right? It talks about how we should come there with a song, you know, with a psalm to encourage one another, right? To keep reminding one another of the day that is coming. Right? To borrow strength from your community. Right? You can even see Paul addressing the church as a whole to the saints right? in Ephesus. Right? There's a community there. It's not a life to believe alone. Then thirdly, borrow perspective from those who have walked this journey before us. Right? This journey of life. And what do I mean by that? So if you are wrestling with this idea of what is the meaning of life and what is the point of life, go to the teacher 
or the preacher in Ecclesiastes. And read that. Feast on that. Borrow some wisdom there. Right? Maybe sit with Moses atop the mountain that he would die on. Right? Imagine that. And then see life through his his eyes. Right? A man that led, what, about a million, 1.5 million people, right? And saw at least 600,000 deaths. Right? Because that generation that was wiped out. He saw at least that much funerals. Right? Think about that. Think about the perspective he has. And maybe look at Psalm 90 as a summary of that perspective. Where he starts out by saying, Lord, God, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Right? There's a grounding in there because he sees the sifting reality of life. It says, ever before the mountains were formed or before you created this world, from eternity or from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So borrow some wisdom from him. Maybe if you're in this place of affliction and it's hard to, to make sense of it, maybe go to Job. Go to the book of Job and get some perspective. Right, the, the book of Job actually I find in a sense interesting. Um, there was a time I read through the book and sort of dawned on me at some point that this book, yes, it's about Job's suffering, but it's actually more about the sovereignty and the sufficiency of God. Right, so Job asks a bunch of questions right, with you know, his friends being there. And then when God would speak from Job 38 to 42, I was expecting some answers, you know, something. Some say, oh yeah, this question, this is why. Right. But what God did was actually to just show Job his sovereignty and his sufficiency. Right. So God didn't really answer any of Job's questions directly. So when Job is asking a question, God was like, let me show you who I am. And you see this transformation in Job, right, where he's coming to a realization that I can trust, I can rest my head on the pillow of his sovereignty. I can rest my head on knowing that he is good. Right? And he will work all things out to that end. So when life is tough, you know, sometimes I go to Revelations 21 and 22 just to see that this is how everything ends. <laughs> I know how it ends. <laughs> Whatever is going on, I know how it ends. Right? It's funny, yes. But it does help me. Right. It, it, it helps me again borrow that eternal perspective. That we are going somewhere. There is a purpose to all of this. This will end here. And this is that end. Right. So when you question your belovedness. And you question if God finds you loving. Go back to Psalm 139. See how much detail God puts into making you. And how much he cares for you. And who you are to him. Right, and maybe also go to Isaiah 53, right, the sovereign servant, and, and see how God chose there, revealing it through Isaiah 700 years before the time of Christ. He's revealing that I will crush Christ for your sake, right? Let that remind you of how much you mean to Him. And th- th- this one is something that I-, I thought about earlier this year. Is that sometimes when, fa- not because of me, but because of certain folks I, I know, that when facing the pain of death, right, or-, or losing a loved one, to recognize that we do not mourn, because it is painful, uh, as those who do not have hope, right, and that death 
is a doorway. For those who have put their faith in him, it is a doorway. Right? You see, on the other side, they are far more alive than they are here. Quite frankly, here is death compared to what they will be on the other side. And again, it's painful. It's still painful. Right? But there is a perspective there that that is helpful, at least a little bit. So if I'm to summarize all that I'm saying, what I'm saying here is, in light of knowing that God is the primary actor in your life, right? in, in light of seeing that and seeing how much he loves you, and you choosing to, to put your trust in him, and if you haven't, you know, talk to anybody around you here, right? and they, they would, excuse me, just help explain that. So in light of all of that, I'm hoping that we turn away from ourselves. We turn away from the things we put our hopes in and we turn to him. Regardless of whether or not life is going well or not. But that we continue to rest our head on the pillow of his sovereignty. Right? Said another way, I'm hoping we rest our heads on his greatness, his power and his might. And his goodness, his love for you. Right? And so one way of doing all of this really is to feast on God's word. Right? There is no other way really to, to know him without feasting on his word. Right? So when I said go borrow perspective from those that have walked this path before us, it's go back to the word. Right? Let that be a consistent feature in your life where you're resting on him to feast on his word. So having said all of that, let's talk about homework. <laughs> it's a good homework. Um, so I'm almost done, but just wanted to talk about a little exercise, and it's in your handout. But I want to talk through it a little bit, and then we'll wrap up, right? Um, so again, going back to how theocentric Paul is, just in those first two verses, and you see all throughout Ephesians, right? How he describes all of us in light of our relation to God. Right, and how we've talked about resting on the pillow of his sovereignty and what that means by feasting on his word. But how do we do that in a more practical sense? Like, how do we make room for that? Right, so uh, there's an author here that I like that says that in contemporary society, our society, our adversary, read that as Satan, majors in three things noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in the muchness and the manyness of life, he is satisfied. Right? The, the distractions. Right? And this particularly, I think, impacts us Christians. Where on one hand, you know, yeah, yeah, I put my faith in God. Right? But there is no real growth and walking after him. Right? And being more reflective on your life. So let me break this down. As you know, there's a tendency to just keep running and spinning the wheel, right? And chasing different things. Things that are generally good, right? And trying to aim at certain things. But you see, the enemy majors in distractions so you do not see how you are becoming something else other than God. See, the truth is we are all becoming something, right? Day to day, night to night, we are all growing into something. Nobody is stagnant. You don't stay the way you are. There is always a becoming, it's more of which direction you're going. And so where the enemy distracts us, we don't see how maybe we are becoming more cynical and cold-hearted and calculated to get to our goals. Right? Because in the corporate world, in a sense, you have to be that way if you want to. Right? In some sense. 
get ahead. So it's almost like you, you slowly become that without noticing. And you start rationalizing a bunch of things. Like, oh, that's just the way it's done. Everybody does it. It's just fair game. Right? And m- m- maybe you don't see how you barely take time to sit with God anymore. In a more meaningful manner. Not just in, oh, what's my devotion for today? Someone. All right, we've read someone, check. I'm out the door. Not like that. But sitting down with God. Right, having that time. Maybe sometimes vanity. Under this couch of, you know, ambition or wanting a comfortable life, which is really, a lot of times that's when we see it, it's honestly greed. But we don't see that. It's just like, oh, I just like nice things, so I just want comfortable things. Now, don't get me wrong, please. I'm not saying don't buy nice things. I'm not saying don't go on vacations. I'm not saying that. But I am saying there is a place we get to. There's a progression there. Where we are just honestly just about ourselves. That curved in on ourselves over and over again. Right? And when you don't have enough time to sit back and look at it, you don't notice it. It's just a... Life just goes on, right? Sometimes it becomes second nature to look down on others because they are not in your class, right? Again, it's it's just that little tweaks over time, right? So you just don't go from A to B. Like, no, it's just little tweaks over time. Then before you know it, you're just like, oh, wow, did I really say that to that person? Or did I really think that? And that's the more nebulous one. You don't say it, but you think it. And so because you don't see it, it feels okay, you know, I didn't say it. But the thinking is just as important, right? Especially when you, you, you assent to it, right? So basically what I'm trying to say is without being quiet, without slowing down, how do I truly get to see that God really is my deepest desire? How do I see that God is my deepest desire? And how do I pay attention to that? Right. So here's what I'm saying. And this is just a you know prescription. So this week, you know, take thirty minutes. Right. If you can do it daily it would be great. Take thirty minutes. Um go somewhere comfortable, quiet. It might be in your home, it might be in a park. Right. Just take thirty minutes. To, you know, if you keep it consistent it's it's nice. If not do do what you can, right? And just lay aside everything. The things you usually do, your phone, you know, the things you think about, your to do list. If it comes to mind, write it down. Right, so that you're not afraid you forget. Write it down, then let it be. And then just think about some of these concepts. Right? And just let it soothe your heart. So and again, try then the handout. You know, think about the unending and this unchanging love of God for you. Like just actually think about what does that mean? That I mean much to God. What does it mean that God has been deliberately at work? In and for me, before time. What does that mean? Right? Think, think about the miracle of miracles. Forgiveness. That he would forgive me. Right? And, and that adoption into his family. Right? Just rest there. Settle there. Be at ease there. You know, think about how God is with you. No matter how you feel, you might not feel that he's with you. Let me tell you a joke. I don't like flying. Well, I like flying, but I don't like turbulence. Um, <laughs> whenever there's turbulence, <laughs> there's this stark reality of, oh, crap. 
if this thing goes down, it's like, oh man, what am I going to do? So I'm flying to Lagos a couple of years ago, Nigeria, I'm from Nigeria, um, and we are over the Sahara Desert. Right? And everybody's working, everything is going okay, you know, I'm sitting down, I have my seatbelt, thankfully. Um, people are walking around, you know, going to the bathroom, all of that. And we hit this, I think it's called clear something vacuum, whatever. We hit some bubble. And it just goes do, 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 do. Like I am literally like jumping up. Right? People are falling down. I had my Bible. I was about to pick up my Bible when it started. So the Bible is flying up and down. It's all torn. <laughs> the lady that is sitting beside me, she was out. <laughs> she was running back. She didn't even wait for me to get up. She climbed over me. Like she actually stepped on me. <laughs> I stepped into her seat. And then she saw the Bible in my hand. She's like, open to Psalm 121. Open to Psalm 121. You see, I wanted to laugh. <laughs> but I was also scared. I just gave her the Bible. I'm like, take. <laughs> but I see all of that. I see all of that just to say, the more you rely on God, right, the more there is that growth, the more there is that peace. With God, yes, you are shaken, but you know who you are in Him. You know where everything is going, right? And that's a funny example, but there are more serious things in life, right? And let us truly turn to Him, right? So, so that in our lives we can always rest on the pillow of His sovereignty and sufficiency, because only He is, only Him is sufficient. Like nothing else, everything fades, everything. Career, comfort, all of that fits. Right? Everything fits. So, in lieu of that, I think we are done. Um, I think we're out of time. I think I've been talking for too long. So, um, let's wrap it up. I had one exercise, but let's skip that. We'll wrap it up. So, let, let me read a verse and then we'll conclude. Sort of like a fitting word to end all of this. To again remind us of God being the primary actor and where he's taking us. Right? So, Jude chapter 1. From verse 24 to 25, I'm just going to read this. <clears throat> now to him, God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you because you love us. Uh, We mean much to you, not because we're worthy. We're not, actually. This is what makes it more astounding, really, that, that we mean much to you, that you love us. And that your work for us, your goal for us, what you are after is conformity to your image. And that in and of itself is shocking. That you will look upon us and you would want us to be conformed to your nature. God, what I'm praying for today in all of our hearts, right, is that we truly learn to see you and we see you and we rest in you. That you will help us carve our time. to consistently be with you. That we with unveiled faces will continue to behold you and then we are transformed into your likeness from one degree to the other. That for those of us that are struggling with challenges, please meet us where we are, God. Breathe upon us. 
draw us, help us see your perspective, help us see your action in that affliction, in that challenge. Help us rest on you and know that you, you, who is at work, you who gave up Christ Jesus, who freely gave him up for us, that you will give us all things graciously along with him and that you are with us forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.